Amen. So Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and what we've been looking at is we've been going through the last little bit of Ephesians going all the way back to chapter 5, even all the way back to chapter 4. We've been looking at this walk, our walk in the Lord. And we've seen in chapter four this walk in unity, walk in purity. Moving in chapter five, we saw this walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. And then this last section we've been in, this walk in harmony, an important one. It's a long section because it covers a lot of different bases. It talks about how we're to walk in harmony within the church. We're to walk in harmony within marriages, husbands and wives. We're to walk in harmony within the home, Parents and children, children obeying the the parents. And Cole did a great job last week teaching us through that. Our relationship's gotten a lot better now that he's kind of understood what this is all about, being obedient to parents. It's been really helpful, really good. So, uh, but yeah, that was a good good word. And and so we're gonna continue looking at this last section now regarding walking in harmony. And that is in regards to the workplace now. Employers and employees and and then we're going to move today from looking at this walk in harmony to this walk in victory. And that's kind of how the book of Ephesians ultimately wraps up and ends. And so we'll start that here this morning as well. But verse 5 of Ephesians 6, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now, whenever we read a section of this in the Bible, it's a sensitive one when we deal with slaves and masters. This is not a comfortable subject. It's one that many people really use to kind of even want to dispute the Bible, thinking that, man, see, it's God and it's Christians and it's the church that's brought slavery into the world. And this is how people think. And can I just say, this is the the farthest thing uh, from the truth here. This is not theologically sound when we say things like this there's many things mentioned in the bible that the bible does not promote or condone but it was addressing it because it was a a a serious issue that was taking place in society of that time now think about this setting that paul is writing to right now and you got the roman empire that's kind of the world leading you know power at the time and within the roman government there were upwards of 60 million slaves think about that that's a large number right slavery was a very common thing and it had been a very common thing for a long time now within slavery there were people that were slaves because they were seeking to pay off a debt And so they brought themselves under slavery to pay off this debt. Some were slaves because they were bought and sold, unfortunately. Some chose to remain slaves even when they were permitted to go free because they developed such a good relationship with their master to where the master and the slave, they became more friends than they did, you know, kind of work partners in a sense or in that relationship. And so many slaves chose to remain as slaves because they were more friends than they were with their their masters. And so these are the things that went on, but of course there were very ruthless things that took place, very heinous acts that were done against slaves in this day. The terror of slaves was that they were absolutely at the mercy of their master's whims. Augustus, 
he crucified one of his slaves simply because that slave killed his pet quail. And so these were some of the awful things that were taking place. Stories like that abound in the ancient world. It's a heavy thing, but we must understand that these are things that were never something that God or Christianity promoted or established. This is more a condition and the fallout of sin. This is what's taken place as humanity has sought to kind of govern themselves. And sadly going to continue until sin is done away with. John Murray deals with this in his book, Principles of Conduct. And Murray says that Paul doesn't speak for or against slavery here in this passage. He is simply addressing those who happen to be in that particular situation. He says, if you're a slave, whether justly or unjustly, you are still under the authority of your designated master. And as such, it is your duty to perform the services that are expected and required of you. That is the Christian way for slaves to behave. Murray goes on to say, that in spite of Paul's instructions here to slaves, and in spite of his writing an entire letter, the book of Philemon, which we'll get to in a few months, Lord willing, that was concerning a runaway slave, the New Testament in general, and Paul's writings in particular, contain the seeds of the dissolution of the institution of slavery. Subsequent history demonstrates that the Christian church has been at the forefront of the movement for the abolition of this institution. So Christianity's done a lot of good. Now still... This is such a, even more so in recent years, this has become such a sensitive topic where people have sought to look back and try to, you know, make amends for things that have gone on in the past, you know, to where we're counseling Aunt Jemima, that kind of thing, you know, and, and everything. And so we're seeing these things happening because there's such a sensitivity, but understand this is in no way a reflection of what the Bible was all about. It's the Bible and it's Christians, it's the Lord and the church that sought to come in and bring a higher ethic to these things and to bring a, a better way to conduct ourselves. Now think about what's happening here in the early church as Paul is writing this. You've got thousands of slaves, maybe millions of slaves that are hearing the gospel, right? And they're suddenly having their hearts impacted and changed and they're saved now they're finding new life in Christ whole households now where you got masters and slaves are getting saved and they're coming to church together and they're worshiping the Lord together and they're hearing messages like Galatians 3 28 that says that there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free and they're hearing hey man I like that let's preach more of that does that mean I don't need to listen to my master anymore can I boss him around a little bit now maybe for a change another thing and this is great stuff but what Paul is saying he's looking to bring some kind of instruction now for these relationships that have been intact and interestingly Paul's not throwing out you know look for the loophole look for the way out of this situation but rather live as a Christ follower in that situation whatever situation you find yourself in live for Christ and in Christ you see Christianity does not offer an escape from our circumstances but rather provides strength and power to live in and through those circumstances. That's what Paul is instructing here. This section had real implication and application to the social order of the ancient world. But I believe as we go through this, we're not dismissing and going, well, we're not dealing with, with masters and slaves. But for us today, the application would come in line with you know, employers and employees. And there's certainly implication and application for us in these kinds of relationships. So Paul says, first of all, right, bond servants, be obedient to your masters who are your, or be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. 
So Paul says, listen, be obedient. Even though you are now one in Christ, there's still roles and responsibilities and there's still, you know, these different orders that are in place here. Be obedient. They're your masters according to the flesh, he says, which is implying that these are ones that kind of give direction when it comes to physical and mental work, but ultimately you have a Lord that is ruling over you in spiritual and, and matters of the conscience. He's the one, Jesus, that we're ultimately serving. But he says servants there in verse five, serve with fear and trembling. Now that's not the idea of, you know, cowering in terror against your master and the fear of, you know, being punished for stepping out of line. What Paul is getting at here is have a right respect and honor of their master. At the deeper level, this is about fearing God. Paul's parallel application or parallel passage of this in, in Colossians chapter three, he even uses that term when he talks about being obedient and fearing God. He ties that in. It's honoring him in our service. As Christians, your desire should be to do a a good job and not disappoint those who are over you. That's the idea. Fearing God is not fearing out of fear and worry, it's saying, I don't want to disappoint him. I want to give my best. And it's the same way in our in those that are over us, those that we might be serving, whether it be in the workplace, that we want to give our best. We want to disappoint them. And we do so in sincerity of heart. It all kind of ties in here. This means being genuine in your work. That word for sincerity in the Greek is the idea of singleness or singleness of mind. In other words, you're not kind of functioning with this duplicity or deceit in your service. You're having a singleness of mind where you're saying, I'm giving it my all here. I'm not kind of saying, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And you kind of go off and you do something else and you never get to that job. No, you're very devoted. You're saying, yeah, what I say, I'm, I'm going to do. And, and that word sincerity is elsewhere translated in the Bible. In the New King James, it's elsewhere translated as liberal or liberalness. And in the ESV, it's translated as generosity. The idea there being that when you are serving with sincerity of heart, you're being very generous. You're being very liberal. You're giving your all. You're not kind of being deceitful, half-hearted work. You're being singleness of mind. You're giving a wholehearted effort there. And you do so, what does it say next? As to Christ in verse 5. As to Christ. With sincerity in heart, as to Christ. Again, all that we do, we're doing it under Christ. Here's the great blessing we have as believers now is knowing that we're not just doing things for other people as good and important as that is. Ultimately, everything we do, we do unto the Lord. That's what, what Colossians 3 also says. Everything you do, do unto the Lord. Not just unto men. And I'll tell you, I've had so many situations in my life in the past here where that has been such a help to me, where I've had, you know, people that were, you know, uh, leaders, a boss, whatever you want to, and, and, and come and say, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I just kind of can easily get a, a bad attitude. And I think, you know, why are you making me do that? You know, how come you don't do it? I can easily, you know, we can all, I'm sure, at times struggle with that. But when we recognize, you know what? I'm gonna do this, but it's not just that I'm doing it because you told me to. I get to do this under the Lord. 
I get to serve the Lord in this. There's a higher calling that I have in my life. There's a higher calling you have in your life as believers to where you recognize everything you do, you get to do unto the Lord for his praise and for his glory. We serve the King of Kings here. And what a blessing it is. And I'll tell you, it will turn your attitude around when you recognize that you're serving something greater than what's right before you. You're serving the King. And that will give you joy in that service. And we do so not with eye service, it says in verse 6, as men pleasers. And, and, and I'm sure maybe you've experienced what that's like. Maybe you've been one that's done it or you've got others doing it, but where people are maybe sleeping on the job a little bit, maybe they're finding a nice quiet corner in the back room where they're pretending to work and they're taking a little siesta, you know? I might have been guilty of that in the past myself here. And then suddenly the boss walks in, you're like, oh, hey, yeah, how you doing? Just clean up over here. Somebody left a mess, just trying to help out, cleaning up, you know? And you're all sitting, you're putting on this show, you know, to be seen rightly here. Paul says, don't do things just to be seen, you know, by people. Don't be men pleasers in this. That's not the way it should be with a believer. Your work ethic should be that you're doing this not to be seen outwardly, but because of who you are inwardly. And again, it's all tied to our service to the Lord. That's what is meant next when we read that you're doing the will of God from the heart. See, being a good servant or worker or employee is not just doing so when someone's watching. It's about living this way because of your calling to serve Jesus. And you want to always give him your best. It's a life now that we're seeking to live that's flowing with integrity and faithfulness. See, Christians should be the the hardest workers in the job force, the most integral, honest. Uh, Christians should be serving in a way where employers all around are going, I need to hire more Christians because these guys give it their all. These guys are faithful, dependable, they're trustworthy. In fact, at this time here, Bible times, when, when slaves were sold in the marketplace, Christians would oftentimes have a higher value to them. Christian slaves, because people knew. These were people that worked well, integrally, honestly, trustworthy. And that's the way it should be for us as well. Employers should be going out of the way to say, I need to hire more Christians because these are the ones that give me their best. Paul writes in verse seven, with goodwill, doing services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Again, all that we do is ultimately done unto the Lord and not just unto others. Yet when we're serving the Lord and we're seeking to bless the Lord, we're gonna be a blessing to others as well. See, when we have that attitude, we recognize that, Lord, it's all unto you and you're gonna, you're gonna provide the blessing there. I don't need to be looking for accolades, promotion, a pat on the back, because the Lord is the one that rewards. Uh, I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 1 and 4. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Make sure that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. See, I know that's talking about charitable work, but I think even in our workplace, we can understand that, Lord, when I give you my best, when I serve rightly, justly, and integrally, Lord, I'm going to receive what I need from you. Others may not give that reward, but I know ultimately there's rewards. We're, we're, we're paying dividends now eternally, and, and you're going to bless that work presently as well. So we turn now from 
looking at the employees to looking at the employers, from servants to, to masters now. And there's a word for them as well. Paul says in verse nine, and you masters do the same things. Do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. What Paul is saying here is, don't be a jerk kind of a boss here. Why? Because you're also under authority, right? You, you want your employees to give you their best, then give them your best in return. I read just this past week, I don't know if you saw this uh, floating around on the internet here, but there was a, a man that was working for a guy down the state, just a ruthless boss, just unkind not many people liked working for him. He finally said, I, I just kind of had enough. I'm going to give my, my two weeks notice. So he wrote a letter, nice email, gave his two weeks notice. And, and the boss just kind of withheld his last paycheck from him. And the man's like, you know, you owe me. And the boss tried to say, well, you know, you kind of left things a mess. And you did some stuff and it's kind of, you know, what, what I'm going to keep for myself. And the man said, well, you know, we might need to, you know, get some lawyers involved if you're not going to pay me my last check that I, I deserve. So what the boss did was he paid this man's last check in pennies. Almost $1,000 worth of pennies. What weren't just pennies, they were pennies that had been drenched in engine oil and this man went and had them dropped off in this employee's driveway. Unbelievable. That's the kind of boss you don't want to have. It's the kind of boss that Paul's saying, don't be like that here. Don't, you know, don't be threatening and making things hard for those that are under you understand that you also are under authority and you are a servant just as others are around you employee an employer is to see themselves in a place of submission as well so don't be uttering threats you're not going to have support from your own master in heaven on that we have a collective master together he is god and we are not and we cannot act like it we need to be collectively serving and blessing one another. Sure, an employer, a boss has uh, different roles of <clears throat> leading and, and giving direction, but may they do so in grace. Remember, Paul's talking about Christians here. He's addressing the church. These things don't always fly in the secular world. They're not looking at these things, but understand if the secular world could see what God has laid out and the blessing that comes from it, I'm sure they'd all the more say, man, I wanna be a part of that kind of work environment. May we be producing those kinds of situations where we find ourselves here. Well, that covers our section on walking in harmony. Let's move in and look and start it. Just get it into a couple verses here regarding our walking in victory. Paul says in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So, after talking about submission and walking in harmony, it's not long before you begin to see the challenge there is in walking that way, right? Just spend two or three minutes with a person hanging out with them and you begin to see, man, this walk of submission and grace is a pretty tall order here, isn't it? But here's the beauty. As believers, we're not left to our own strength to try to accomplish this and carry this out. We have strength from the Lord. Notice what Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul doesn't say, 
hey guys, train yourself up. Start just doing better. Start really trying to accomplish these things. No, it doesn't say it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's not in our might that we're gonna accomplish these things or be able to walk this way and live out these things that Paul is saying in, his, in the word here, that God is laying out in his word. You see, it's when the Christian realizes that they are weak in and of themselves, but in the Lord that they're strong, that they can really begin to move forward in this kind of power that God gives us. Paul had to understand that, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul writes that, that the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul emphasized three times this need for strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of of his might. Three different Greek words that Paul used that all kind of identify this need for us to be endued from power of the Lord. And it's the same way that Paul prayed in the beginning of this epistle, this letter. In Ephesians 1.19, if you just flip over a couple pages there, Paul uses these same Greek words here when he says in Ephesians 1.19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Be strong in the Lord. Toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Three times again, he emphasizes these words that are so necessary for us to be endued with this power to live out this life for the Lord. Now, we can coast through life thinking that everything is just going to go well and yet fail to recognize that there's a real battle that's going on all around us. It's almost like Paul is saying, when he says in verse 10 there, finally, my brethren, we think, you know, oh good, he's, he's coming to the end of the letter. Like when the pastor says, and finally, and you're like, oh phew, he's wrapping up. And it's like half an hour later, like what happened to that word finally? That wasn't too final for me. It, it's like we think Paul's maybe addressing, oh, I'm just wrapping. But what he's really seeming to be saying is that finally, as in, you know, for the rest of your days, this is what you're gonna be experiencing. Oh, the Christian life, is a great life, but it's one that you are going to be engaged in the battle. And it's going to continue on until the Lord returns. You would think that the Christian life would be one of just acceptance, appreciation, and accolades. As, as everywhere the gospel went, you know, Christians brought this higher ethic. But that's not what we experience in the world, is it? No, we experience hostility, hatred, opposition. Why is that? Because there's a real enemy at work. There's an enemy that hates Christians, that hates that we're linked to Christ, that we have salvation and life in him. And his goal is to come against us and drag us down and hopefully, you know, separate us from the Lord. We're introduced to this enemy in this next verse. Look at verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here's the mention of the devil here. This is our enemy. But notice something here. I love this. See, in Ephesians, we've been seeing a lot of different positions that we have as a believer. The first part of Ephesians, we looked at where we sit in Christ in the heavenly places, right? Where we sit. And then we moved on to look at our walk, how we walk with Christ. But now this last part is dealing with how we stand, from sitting 
to walking, to standing. And this is what it's all about here. See, the Bible's not laying out to you, you need to get out there and go on the offensive and just start tearing things up, man. Just start, just, you know, knocking things down. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, stand your ground. Stand. Paul repeats it in verse 13 when he says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to, what? Stand. Standing, you see, here's the reality is that we already have the victory in and through Christ. The battle's been won, but there's an enemy that hasn't given up yet. He knows he's on borrowed time. And so he's continuing on with the onslaught until he is going to be finally sentenced to the lake of fire, which he will be. But he's continuing that onslaught. So what we're called to do is simply stand your ground. Battle's won, victory's ours, but stand your ground in that. Don't give the enemy any ground to push back. And what's happening in the world today is that the enemy is at work and he's trying to gain ground. He's trying to push Christians, the church, back. I think we all experience it in the world we're, we're living in. And there's churches that are willingly giving up ground. We've got progressive Christianity that's on the rise, you know where there's this ludicrous stuff that's being said in the name of Jesus, in the name of the church. There are churches that are, are coming out with statements saying, you know, here's what the Bible is to us. It's not the authoritative word of God, you know. Uh, it's not infallible, inerrant. And they're, they're basically dismissing the word of God. If you dismiss the word of God, you've got no ground to stand on. What are you about then? You're certainly not Christians, but we see this happening now in the name of the church, in the name of Christianity, and we've given up much ground. Word of God says, stand your ground. Know that there's a real enemy that's coming against you. And his aim, as John 10, 10 says, is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to break apart the church. Paul addressed in Ephesians 4, endeavor to keep the unity of the peace. And the enemy knows, man, if I can get Christians going against each other, and in disunity and division, man, that's going to accomplish a lot of what I need to see accomplished. The devil wants to tear you down and keep you away from the Lord. Now, some people see the devil in everything. Some people are like, man, my car won't start this morning. It's the devil. And it's like, I mean, did you check the gas tank? You got gas? <laughs> oh, it's on empty. That's the devil, I guess. No, you didn't put gas in it is the problem, right? I'll tell you today, interesting talking about this stuff. Today, we've had an interesting Sunday. Uh, you know, first service in worship, I broke my string on the guitar. We're fumbling through, we got through. Second service, I had like a coughing fit. I, I felt like I swallowed a feather. I had a tickle. And I was all through worship. I'm literally coughing all through worship. I'm like, man, I think, I'm not one that's quick to say the devil's, you know, at work, I think the devil was at work this morning, but we've gotten through it now, and we prayed, and we're like, okay, Lord, we're not gonna give the devil any more due, but here's the thing is that w w there are some that are, are, you know, they see the devil in everything, but then there's the other side where they just completely even dismiss the reality of the devil and the work that he's doing in the world today, and they're neglecting to see that he's a formidable foe looking to devour them. Some are barely realizing that they are in the battle and they're ill-equipped for the battle and subsequently losing 
ground in the battle. John Stott said, a thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. Similarly, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We shall go out to the battle unarmed, but with no weapons, but our own puny strength. And we shall be quickly and ignominiously defeated. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Can you imagine the troops landing on the shores of Normandy in their pajamas? Ah, you know, it's been napping on the boat. Let's go see what this beach life is like. No way, man. You need to be equipped. And we're told to put on the full armor of God. The whole armor of God. Not just a part. Not just going, well, I got my helmet on. That should be enough. Not just one day. I, I put something on last week. Should be, no, every day, willingly, willfully, putting on the whole armor of God. We need it. We're gonna talk more about that armor next week so that this, you know, next week now, I'll be praying for you as you're gonna be very defenseless here and probably getting, you know, knocked around because you don't know about the armor. No, I, I'm sure you do, but we'll go through that more detail Next week, what God's word says about the armor, but this armor allows you to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles is the Greek word methodeia, and it means methods. It means, you know, scheming or craftiness. You know, when I hear the wiles of the devil, I think of wild E. Coyote. How many people are familiar with wild E. Coyote? All right. And he's out to get the roadrunner, and wild E. Coyote is constantly plotting and scheming the destruction of the roadrunner, right? And yet oftentimes what we see happening is things kind of backfiring on him. And that's the reality again for us, my friends, is that we've got an enemy, but we gotta be wise to his plotting and scheming, not fearing, not worrying, but know how he comes against us and know also that we've got protection. We've got the the ability to stand against those things, not in ourselves, but in and through the Lord. But are you actively taking that, receiving that, and putting it on? See, the reason we often don't realize the work of the enemy is because we don't see it in the physical, right? And It'd be nice if the devil revealed himself. I mean, not really. I don't want to see the devil, but, you know, reveal himself so that we know what we're dealing with. We know like, ah, this is you. Okay, now I know I'm definitely not gonna be engaging in this thing. This is obviously, we, we don't see the devil. And so we oftentimes dismiss like, ah, pfft, devil's not at work, you know. He's not, he's not bothering me. And yet we fail to realize that the struggle we're in is a direct correlation to the enemy's temptation the enemy's attacks the enemy's scheming the wiles of the devil the plotting and the scheming notice we read in verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places see our battle is not fought in the physical realm just because you don't see the attack of the enemy, or you don't see the enemy, don't dismiss it and think, ah, he's not at work. He's actively engaged in your destruction, but it's happening in a spiritual way. 
And in the same way, we have to be careful that we don't engage in conflict or battle in the physical. See, what the enemy would love to do is cause us as believers to engage together in conflict with one another and get in the battle. And what happens when we begin to fight a fight with one another is we engage in the wrong fight. And the enemy is simply looking to drag us into the flesh to where our flesh begins to come out, where we begin to act in pride or we begin to get angry and we begin to be filled with hatred or bitterness towards somebody because of what they've done. And we fail to realize, man, that was the enemy dragging me in in a spiritual way to a physical battle that I shouldn't be fighting because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. If you're warring against your employer or employee, you're fighting the wrong battle. If you're in conflict at home in a parental and child relationship, that's the wrong fight. If you're fighting against a husband or a wife, that's not the right battle to be fighting. The enemy is looking to drag you in, in the flesh, where your flesh begins to rise up into sin and bring separation from you and the Father. It's a wrong fight. We don't fight, fight against flesh and blood. Stop fighting that way. Understand that what's going on in the physical is simply what the enemy is seeking to do in, the, in, a, in a spiritual way. Operating behind the scenes in these things. Don't get knocked down by these things. Put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against those kinds of schemes. Our fight's taking place on a spiritual level against spiritual forces, and Paul mentions them here. They're principalities, they're powers, they're, they're rulers of the darkness, they're spiritual hosts of wickedness. And Paul's describing the spiritual forces here. When, when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Revelation 12, verse 4 and 7 reveals that to us. He's got a, a, a horde of demons that are at work doing his bidding. These descriptions here that we read may be describing the general actions or, or work of the, uh, of the enemy or characteristics of the enemy, but most likely describing the various rankings that we have in the demonic realm. There's different orders and rankings there that we see. Either way, understand that they are after you. Be on guard and take seriously the command of God to put on the whole armor of God. Don't just settle for a bit here and a bit there. Be fully equipped and be ready to stand your ground without giving an inch. And don't lose heart today. It's heavy stuff where you might be going, oh, I wasn't thinking about the devil before and now that's all I can think about. Where is he? What is he doing? Don't, don't lose heart in these things, my friends. He's defeated. Look at what, look at what John says in 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love what Elijah said to his servant in 2 Kings 6, 16. So he answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The enemy may pose a great threat, but it is never a threat to God. And if we are standing in the Lord and making ourselves strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. That's why somebody says, stand your ground. Don't, don't get pushed back. Don't feel like you need to go on the off. Just stand your ground. 
it's the ground of, of victory. It's where the battle's already been won. Stand in the Lord. Stand through the Lord's strength. Don't back down. Don't give an inch. We've been given all we need in Christ and through Christ, but we need to receive it. We need to put it on. We need to strengthen ourselves in his power and his might. Don't be going through this world like you're on some wonderful vacation. And listen, don't get me wrong, man. The, the life that's lived in Christ and with Christ is the best life to live and it is wonderful. But we are more so these days, as Paul says finally, we're more so on a battleship than we are a cruise ship. I love the cruise ship life. But that's not the reality for the, this time that we're living in in this world as believers. We're living on that battleship. That's the mentality that we're to have here. As we see each passing day, how intense the battle is becoming. We see it all around us. Guys, look at what's happening in this world. Man, there's an enemy that's at work. Our, our, our fight is not against governors. It's not against, you know, John Horgan, Dr. Bonnie. That's not our, our fight. It's in the spiritual. We pray for these people. We pray. But stand strong and fight the right fight to the right means. Trust the Lord and lean on the Lord. In ourselves, we're weak, but in Him, we are mighty and strong. James writes in James 4, 7, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. May we continue to know the schemes of the enemy, but resist them. Resist them in the Lord. Stand your ground and he will flee. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you, God, for this word we can look at and the reminders we have of these times that we live in. And they are heavy times. They're, they're crazy times. The enemy is at work and he's only seeking to intensify the battle. But Lord, we don't fear. We don't worry. We don't back down. We stand our ground and we do it in and through you. You've given us the armor to put on. May we do that, Lord. May we be strengthened in you. And while your eyes are closed, I just want to bring that invitation here this morning to those of you that may be listening, whether online, maybe you're here with us this morning and you don't know this life in Jesus. You've never really thought about an actual devil being at work in the world today. And he is at work to drag you away, to keep you away from the Lord. Ultimately, our sin has done that. Our sin has kept us away from God, apart from God, not being able to be in relationship with God. But God made you to be in relationship with him. And we've all committed sin. We're all guilty before the Lord. But God did something to remedy that. And he sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world to die on a cross. And when Jesus did that, he was paying the penalty for your sin. He was providing the forgiveness of your sin. He died and he rose again, securing life and victory and for anyone that acknowledges their sin and their need for a savior and they turn from their sin, they put their trust in Jesus, the Bible says you are saved. God says that you become a born again believer. That means that you have new life now in Christ. Life now and life eternally. And that's given to you freely by God's grace. You don't earn it, you don't work for it. It's not by being a good person or doing good things. It's by admitting your sin and your need and asking Jesus to come and be your Lord and Savior. That's grace. Getting what we don't deserve. And so if you do not know that salvation, you do not know that life in Jesus, I invite you to ask him right now.
to come and give you that life and forgiveness of sin, to receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you pray that, he will do so freely and you will be given new life and eternal life today. I encourage you to do so. If you've done that, would you reach out to our church here and let us know? We'd love to follow up with you. And if you're here today, come and talk to me. I'd love to share more with you about that. So Lord, we pray just that you continually, Lord, would bring people into salvation and into your life. And that they would begin to experience the joy of victory and life in you. Salvation, eternal life, what a blessing. So Lord, do that work among us here, we ask in your name, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna close with a song here today.